Well, we're going to jump into the scriptures this morning. Pastor Sam has been doing a series called Honorable, and I think it's really fitting. I think it's really fitting. Every year, uh, he wants to start the new year off right. And so one of the things that we do to do that is we start the year with prayer. And uh, so we've done two of our Wednesday night prayer times. One of them had to be online because there was a snowstorm, you know, but Holy Spirit can transcend the distance and we prayed. And uh, but we're going to be here Tuesday night to celebrate Sarah and we're going to be here Wednesday and we're going to be praying. It's so important for us to pray together. And it's good when we pray in our houses. It's good. I'm glad we've got technology that allows us to be apart even during a storm and still come together and pray, but there's just no replacement for us being together in this house, in this place, praying together. There's, some, there's something powerful about that. New Testament, you read it, their miracles happened because they came together and prayed, even when their lives were in danger. They came together and prayed. It's an important way to start the year, but I think it's also important for us to start the year talking about honor. We live in a culture that is really dishonoring, increasingly dishonoring. Uh, you watch social media stuff. If you, you'll see little, uh, Facebook's always trying to get you to watch those videos. I don't know what that section is, but they're always popping little videos up. Check this video out. And there's all kinds of, some of them are really funny. Some of them are really, uh, are really good. Some of them are really terrible because people are so dishonoring. They're fighting over parking spots and shooting each other up and cussing each other out and all the rest of that stuff. And it seems like our culture is increasingly going in that direction. But if we are to be kingdom people, then that means we have to have a kingdom attitude about us. And while the rest of the culture is doing its thing, what we can't have happen is that we look just like the rest of the world, that we look just like the rest of the culture. While the culturing is increasingly dishonoring, we need to be honoring, and I think we need to set that tone for this year, especially with election stuff coming. Don't, pretty soon, your TVs are going to be overrun with commercials for vote for me. Uh, you're already probably getting mail about it, and everybody's going to be going at each other. We need to have an honoring tone in the body of Christ. I think it's, a, I think it's wise for a pastor to, to start this year out just like that. In week one, we talked about honoring all people. And if you remember, we looked at the, the woman at the well in John chapter four, and Jesus actually transcends all kinds of things to show honor to her. And there are some ways, if you go back to that message, there are ways that we honor people or dishonor people. Some of us have been dishonored in some of those same ways, but Jesus transcends those things like status and culture and so forth. And he shows honor to somebody who he had no business showing honor to on a human level. But Jesus gives us an example of what it looks like to honor all people. And then Pastor Sam last week talked about honor in the body of Christ, and he talked about loving the family of believers. And how do we do that? We prize one another. We, we, uh, we pray for one another. We perfect one another. We help each other grow in our faith. And we also pardon each other. We forgive one another. We have an attitude of forgiveness in the body of Christ. That is honoring. Today we're going to talk about one of the most important areas of honor, and that is honoring God himself and what that looks like. So our foundational verse is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. I'm going to read it for you. Uh, and there are four categories that you'll see in this, in this verse, and we've been going through them one by one. It says, honor all people, love the brotherhood or the family of believers, fear God, honor the king. And we're going to talk about that fear God. 
that he's really talking about honor, even though he uses the word fear. And listen, some people say, well, I don't like that it says we're supposed to fear God. Aren't we, we're not supposed to fear God, are we? Doesn't scripture say that perfect love casts out fear? What is it? You know, there, and there's some Bible translations that I read that they get to passages that talk about fearing God, and they kind of soften the passage just a little bit. They, get, they add some words in there like reverence, and it's not that reverence isn't, isn't real and true, and it's not that that concept isn't involved in fearing God, but sometimes they soften it just a little bit. I mean, there is a healthy fear of God that we need to have. Uh, I was together with my um, in-laws the other day, my wife's very big family. We were all together. Very big, very loud family. I am an introvert. The first, now, some of y'all don't believe that just because I talk up here, but I really am an introvert. I've passed that spiritual gift on to my children, and so me and my boys, we are introverts, and so we could all just be alone and be great, you know. Uh, my wife, her, there's not an introvert in your family that I know of. I don't think there's a single one. And they, we all got together recently, and, and uh and they always are sharing memories, and they got on to sharing memories about my father-in-law, Frank, and his belt. Does any of you all have a father with the belt? The belt on the shelf, not the elf on the shelf, the belt on the shelf. <laughs> and, and Frank's was a thick belt, wasn't it? When Frank said, you knew it was coming. Or when your parents told you to go cut a switch, go cut you a switch. Ooh, just hearing those words. I never got spanked with a switch. All I had to do is hear that word. It sounds like that hurts. Ooh. But the, Frank would pull his belt. And listen, they, they feared Frank in that moment. But here, here's the deal. Fear of their father in that moment was fear of just judgment. It wasn't frightened fear like, I don't know this person. I'm scared of what they're going to, well, I'm scared of the belt maybe. But... I'm, I'm scared of this person. It's not that type of a fear. It's a fear that says, I know my father loves me, but I also know that my father's gonna judge me justly and righteously. He'll protect me from this stuff out here, but there is a time that I need to fear. So there's a fear when, when Peter writes and says, fear God, he's talking about a fear that comes from relationship. If you don't have relationship, then you have frightened fear. If you're distant, you have fear that is scared because something is unpredictable. But when you have relationship with God, then you can have the healthy fear that reveres, but also fears because I know he is a just judge and he's gonna hold me accountable. So when Peter uses the word fear here, he is talking about honoring, but he's talking also about recognizing God as a just, holy judge, and we need to fear that. But how do we honor God? How do we show that? How do we, how do we do that? What does that look like in our lives? And we're gonna look at a little Old Testament book that focuses on this very thing. It's the last book in the Old Testament called Malachi. It is not the Italian prophet Malachi, as everyone says. It is Malachi. Uh, when I was little, I didn't know how to pronounce some of those words. I thought Job was Job, and I didn't know how to pronounce Malachi, and so it's Malachi. And uh, there are only four chapters in the book. It's very short, but it's really powerful. And the word Malachi actually is Hebrew, which means my messenger. So Malachi might have been a proper name, or it might have just been a prophet who was speaking anonymously. He just identifies himself as God's messenger. 
Now, if you remember a couple of years ago, there's a little history that goes behind this. I want you to understand what was going on so what we read makes sense to you. Uh, you know that God started his kingdom out, the, the, the people of Israel, and they wanted a king, so he gave them King Saul. He was not a very good king. He was called by God, but he failed. And then God removed him, and he put David, the greatest king Israel ever knew. David ascended to the throne, and David led well. He was not perfect by any measure, but he led well. But eventually, he had to move off the scene. He hands it on to his son Solomon, and there's this, there's this gradual devolving of spiritual purity among God's people and among God's leaders, and eventually the kingdom splits into two. There was a southern kingdom called Judah. There was a northern kingdom called Israel, and it's not a very big piece of land. If you know what Israel is right now, that's the general area. It's not a very big piece of land, but it was split into two different kingdoms, and there was all kinds of stuff that was going on that shouldn't have gone on. When God's people finally got judged, both kingdoms fell. And another nation came in and just took over everything. Can you imagine another nation coming in here and taking over our country? And one of the key things that they lost was the temple because that was their big identity marker. That was the thing that spoke to the people of Israel of God's presence because the one thing they had that no other nation on earth had was they had the presence of Yahweh. And that temple represented that presence. And when it was gone, it was heartbreaking for God's people. For us, can you imagine if another nation came in, heaven forbid, and our White House is gone, our Capitol building is gone? Those are, you know, those are symbols of our nation. Now, that's what it meant for them to lose their temple. And then what began to happen is other people began to move into their land and they started intermixing ethnicities. Now, remember, I told you a couple weeks ago, God didn't tell his people to avoid intermarrying because there was some type of ethnic superiority deal going on. That is not what was happening at all. But here's what God knew. He knew that if my people start intermarrying with these other people, they're gonna start adopting the false worship practices of those people and they're gonna mess up the purity of worship of Yahweh, and that's exactly what happened. But eventually, uh, God's people got permission to go back to, if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, they got to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. There were all kinds of challenges that went along with it, but they start to rebuild, and eventually they start to offer sacrifices again like God had told them to do before, and it's in this period of time, generally, that Malachi is written. Because as God's people get to return to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple, which they thought was great, they're facing all kinds of challenges. There's been a lot of intermixture going on. There's all kinds of strange worship going on. And they're still having trouble with people. They were struggling with people like the Samaritans we talked about a couple weeks ago. Just, there's constant friction going on. And God's people are feeling like, we're supposed to be your chosen people, and it doesn't seem like anything is going like we think it should. If we're really your chosen people, if you really love us, we wouldn't be dealing with all of this stuff. And what began to happen is they began to treat God in a way that was not according to what he demanded because they had an attitude about what they were experiencing. That's what Malachi is written about. And what's interesting is how God starts the book of Malachi. He starts it out by saying, I have loved you. And his people say to him, how have you loved us? I mean, look all around. Yeah, we get to rebuild the temple, but everybody's giving us a hard time while we're doing it. There's not a group of people around here that welcomes us. 
we're not fully restored. We still have to be under the domination of someone else. If you really love us, life wouldn't look this way for us. And God says, I absolutely love you and I have absolutely chosen you. It's like God saying to them, listen, I know not everything is going like you want it to go, but don't measure my love for you based on how well things are going for you with what your eyes can see. I love you. Understand, I've got a plan, I've got a promise, I'm, I'm working, and just because it doesn't look like you think it should look in the here and now doesn't mean I don't love you. That's how he starts out his book, and it's true for, it's true for them, it's true for us. Just because things don't go like we think they should go doesn't mean God doesn't love you. Just because we experience challenge doesn't mean that somehow he's walked away, he's not keeping his promise, I'm not part of his chosen people, doesn't mean that at all. He loves you, and that's what he says to his people in Malachi, I love you. But here's what it says in Malachi 1.6. Here's, let's get down to the heart of, okay, God loves them, but they're dishonoring him, and what can we learn from that that will help us to honor God like he wants to be honored? Malachi 1.6, it says, the Lord of heaven's armies says to the priests, a son honors his father, and a servant respects his master. If I'm your father and master, where are the honor and respect I deserve? You've shown contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we ever shown contempt for your name? Now remember, they're restarting their worship and sacrifices of animals as God has directed and so forth. And I'm not going to get into all of, uh, all of the rules and laws and prescriptions that God gave just suffice it to say, they were supposed to give their first and their best to God, whether it was for some form of worship or it was to deal with their sin. They needed to come and bring their first and best to him, but that is not what was happening at all. See, we need to honor God with our best sacrifice, our best sacrifice. In verses, I want to read verses 7 through 9 and in 13, you've shown contempt he says, by offering defiled sacrifices on my altar. Then you ask, how have we defiled the sacrifices? They have devolved so far, they've moved to such a place of dishonor that they don't even recognize what they're doing as dishonoring. They don't even recognize it. How have we defiled the sacrifices? You defile them by saying the altar of the Lord deserves no respect. When you give blind animals a sacrifice, isn't that wrong? Isn't it wrong to offer animals that are crippled and diseased? Try giving gifts like that to your governor and see how pleased he is, says the Lord of Heaven's army. These offerings wouldn't even be accepted by political leaders, but you're gonna give these to the God of the universe? That's what you're gonna do? Go ahead, beg God to be merciful to you, but when you bring that kind of offering, why should he show you any favor at all? You say, it's too hard to serve the Lord. I wish I could do my whiny voice. It's too hard to serve the Lord. And you turn up your noses at my command, says the Lord of Heaven's armies. We're gonna talk about that in a minute. Think of it, animals that are stolen and crippled and sick are being presented as offerings. Should I accept from you such offerings as these, asks the Lord. Now it's a little tough for us to relate sometimes because we live after the life of Jesus. So we live after his death, which was the ultimate Sacrifice. These sacrifices they were giving ultimately looked forward to Jesus who would be the ultimate, perfect, once-for-all-time sacrifice. And that's where we live. 
We've, we've had a once-for-all sacrifice offered for us. We come to God through Jesus. We don't have to bring animals or grain offerings or anything like that, but that's the season that they were in, and since that's what they needed to bring, they needed to bring their first and their best. Listen, God did not give you, you know, leftover cast-offs. It's not like God had a, a bunch of children or whatever and said, so, okay, let's pick the worst one and have that person go down and maybe die and maybe save a couple of people. He gave you himself. He gave you the best. And since that's what he gave beforehand, they needed to be giving their best as well. And, you know, I can just see somebody in, in old ancient Israel, he's talking about crippled and lame. And I mean, can you imagine? This is the God of the universe. This is the God of all your life. You've been hearing about how God delivered his people from, from bondage in Egypt. He parted the Red Seas. They were led by a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. This is the God who gave them manna to eat in the wilderness for years and years, and their shoes never wore out. That's like, Pastor Jeremiah, imagine your Nikes never wear out. You have enough shoes, you could have put shoes on the whole people of Israel in the Old Testament. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I love you, I'm sorry. Those are the stories that they had of deliverance and healing and miracles and all of that. And now you're gonna bring, you're gonna say, hey, why don't you go get, uh, go get that goat that's always falling over out there. Get, the, get that one-eyed, hairless goat with the rash that's always fainting. Get that goat out there. Sorry, I love fainting goats. Bring that one. Let's give that one to God, you know? That's what they're doing to him. Or you know that from your children. You, you know, you, children give you sacrifices like this. Go vacuum the living room. And they go in and, because you, you did this when you were a kid too. And that's it. Well, technically I vacuumed the living room or whatever. Technically I picked up. I picked up my stuff, but nobody else's stuff, but I picked up the living room. That's what God's people are doing to God. Okay, I brought an offering. It stinks, it faints, can't see, it's got a rash, but here you go, God. Now bless me. That's what they're doing. And you know, it's one thing with chores and things like that. It's another thing when we do that to God. And even though we're not bringing animals, we're not bringing grain offerings, all that stuff, we can still have the same attitude in our hearts, the exact same attitude toward God. You know, there's a great example. I love this line. It was actually a song back in, back in my day when, yes, we did have electricity and color and <laughs> indoor plumbing and all that. I'm speaking to one person in particular over here. He knows who he is. Uh, we did have all of those things, but there was a song that actually quoted this verse. King David was leading the people of Israel, and there came a time when a prophet by the name of Gad said to him, you're supposed to go to this particular place, build an offer, and do sacrifices there. And I'm not going to get into the whole reason why. But God wanted David to offer sacrifices in a particular place, but he didn't own the property. So he went to the owner of the property and says, I want to buy this property from you because God wants me to build an altar, and we're going to offer sacrifices here. And the guy says, you know what? You're King David. I love you. You're the king. I can't make you pay for this. Let me just give it to you. I just want to give it over to you. And David says these words, and it's one of the greatest lines in the Old Testament and speaks to how we should view our worship. He says, I will not offer to the Lord my God sacrifices that have cost me nothing. He's like, I'm not going to worship God on the cheap. 
I'm gonna pay for this land and then I'm gonna build the altar and then we can sacrifice. I don't want this to be something that's just cheap. You know, the thing is, is do we do that to God though? Do we try to offer stuff on the cheap? Do we give them our best or do we give them our cast-offs? I mean, you know, in our day, it could be, okay, I'm gonna give God an hour. Well, maybe we go till 11.30, that's okay, but I gotta get back home because I gotta see ESPN pregame, you know? And if you're watching the Lions, and nothing to see on ESPN <laughs> pregame. So, you know, but we, and, and there's nothing wrong with ESPN, there's nothing wrong with sports and all that, but it, it can be, you know what, I'll give you your time, but I'm not gonna give you the best time. I'm gonna save that for the chips, the dip, and the game that's coming up. Or, you know, I'll, I'll go to the church, but I'm really not gonna help. I'm not gonna go up and white bottoms in the nursery. I'm not gonna do whatever. Uh, they give my time on Sunday mornings. You know, uh, I'll listen to Pastor Drew sing. Don't you love the way they lead us on Sunday mornings? Isn't that great? I'll listen to Pastor Drew sing. Pastor Drew and the gang. That's not a new title for y'all, but cool in the gang, Pastor Drew in the gang. I'll listen to them sing, but I'm really not into all that, you know, they can do that. And you know what, you know what, can I just say something? Across this country and even here, do you know that there are people who will intentionally show up late to church? I'm not talking about I got my children and one vomited in the car and we got to clean stuff up and we're behind and I got to, I get to church and I got to get my kids a different place. I understand all that stuff. I did it, we did it ourselves getting kids to where they need to go and sometimes you can't get in right at 10 o'clock or you know, you, you might be in a position where I don't move as fast as I used to move and it's icy and it's a little difficult for, I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. But you know that, that there are people across the country in churches who will intentionally show up late because they don't want to stand up and sing for worship. So they will actually wait however long their worship service is 15, 20, 30, whatever. I won't come and hear the preacher preach, but I get to sit down to do that. I'm not gonna stand up for worship. That's like worship on the cheap. And God's like, can you just give me your best sacrifice? Can you give your best to me? The thing is, is we want God's best for us. We want God to be all about us after we've given him our cast-offs. No, God wants us to honor him with our best sacrifice. He wants us to honor him with the best that we have. It's not going to be perfect, but a heart that says, I want to give you my best God, that's a heart that God wants to bless. Honor God by giving your best sacrifice. We also need to know this in our day and age. You know what the greatest sacrifice is? It's you. You are the greatest sacrifice. Romans 12, 1 says, I urge you by the, uh, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. You honor God by giving yourself to him. And the truth is, that's the greatest sacrifice. And that becomes also your greatest point of blessing. Because our minds can think, if I sacrifice myself to God, it's a loss on my part. But that's really not true. When you give yourself to God, that's your greatest point of blessing. And that's when he can actually fill you and bless your life like you want to be blessed. Don't give God your leftovers, give him the best. And not just in front of people, give him your best in the places nobody sees. Give him your best when no one is looking. Honor God by giving him, giving him your best. Here's the second thing, honor God with your reverence. In verse 11 of Malachi 1 it says, but my name is honored by people of other nations from morning till night. 
All around the world, they offer sweet incense and pure offerings in honor of my name. For my name is great among the nations, says the Lord of heaven's armies. We need to revere his name. To revere someone is to treat them with profound awe and respect, to show devotion to them. It's to recognize God's greatness. Um, God is saying, listen, he says to his people, I chose you and you're not honoring my name, but other people who have not been chosen by me, they're actually honoring me. That should be a point of shame for you, for you people. That's what God's saying to his people in Malachi. That should be a point of shame for you that other people not called by me are honoring my name. You need to revere and honor my name. You know, I think sometimes the day that we live in, we read the New Testament because God's people in the Old Testament didn't have the New Testament. Jesus hadn't walked the face of the earth, earth yet. But I think on our side of the life of Jesus, sometimes we read scriptures like Jesus saying, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. And those are great lines, those are great verses. Or we read about the Last Supper, which was such an informal, intimate time Jesus had with his disciples just before he's gonna go to the cross. We see him, we, we watch things like The Chosen. If y'all been watching The Chosen, it's great. Uh, really enjoying it. We've, we're waiting for season three now. We've watched one and two. Um, it's great stuff. It really kind of really helps you get a little bit of an understanding for what it might have been like to walk with Jesus. And we see Jesus who, he looks just like the rest of the guys around him. He's very informal. He's laughing. And I believe all of those things are very true. But I also believe that there can be a sense in which we read those verses and it makes us feel a little bit familiar with Jesus. It gives us a little bit of an attitude sometimes like they had in the New Testament when they said, isn't that just Joseph and Mary's son? Isn't that that guy that, that we just always knew? Um, but I guarantee you, there's just something that shifts. When I read Jesus with his disciples and, and he really is God in flesh and I love those scenes and it's amazing and I really do believe that if, if Jesus were here, he would be laughing and that there would be an informality about it. But Jesus is still Lord. He is still Lord. When I read the New Testament, I read the Gospels and it's great, but then after Jesus is resurrected, I just feel like there's a shift in the feeling. I feel like the disciples see the resurrected Jesus and, and they recognize that's their friend, but there's also something about them that stands back and is like, he really is Lord. He really is the God of the universe. And there's, a, there's an intimacy, but it's not the, the familiarity breeding contempt, if that makes sense to you. It's kind of like, uh, I've, I'm informal with my kids, but once my, one of my sons called me by my first name. He heard other people calling me by my first name, so he thought he was gonna call me by my first name. And apparently I shot him the look. <laughs> and I said, that's not what you call me, you know. You call me dad, you don't get to call me by my first name. Because we are close, we are informal, but we're not that informal. There still is, you're not my peer, you're not my friend, you are still my son, but also, nobody else gets to call me dad but you. There's an intimacy that goes along with that too. My son just got married in July. I'm gonna call you out, Sparty. So, we love our daughter-in-law. The only thing is that she went to Michigan State. 
It's time for another altar call, even right now, for some of you. No, we love her pieces. I call her Sparty. I actually have to stop and think of what her real name is, which is Alex, because I call her Sparty, Spart, Spartacus, Spartinsky, all kinds of versions of that. But you know what she calls me? Papa, okay? So you don't get to call me that. She gets to call me that. But she doesn't call me by my first name. She uses a term that's endearing and also respectful at the same time. We're close, but we also understand it's the same. I don't call my mom by her first name. I call her mom. I think sometimes with God, we can even have a good intention, but there's a little bit of familiarity, and so we kind of treat Jesus like a commoner sometimes. And here's the thing. When, someone, when something is common, when we do that, what it is is we're, we're not taking God seriously. When you're not revering someone, you don't take seriously who they are or what they say. And I think sometimes in the church, particularly in the United States, we have a lot of that. Oh, I, that's Jesus, I'm gonna go to the church. Yeah, we can do whatever. We can wear the sandals and the jeans and whatever. And all that stuff is great. But if it produces in us an attitude of familiarity and commonality, that's just, Jesus is just common, then we're not revering who Jesus is. We're not taking seriously who he is and what he says. I don't wanna treat Jesus like a commoner. To treat Jesus as, uh, like he's supposed to be, to revere God is to take him seriously. You know, Proverbs 8 says that to, to fear the Lord is to hate evil, it's to take seriously what he says about how I live my life, what I should be doing, what I should not be doing. And sometimes I just treat his word and treat him like it's common because I wanna do my own thing, and when I do that, I'm not revering God like he deserves to be revered. Do I really take seriously what he says about what I should embrace and what I should do and what I should avoid? Or do I just think I can do whatever I wanna do? It really doesn't matter. I try to bring God down to my level. I'm gonna read a passage of scripture, but I'm just gonna reinterpret it this way so that I can still do my gig, uh, you know, and kind of say that I'm, I'm following Jesus and so forth. Or am I really taking seriously what it is that he said? How do I use his name? Do I use his name in a common way? I mean, is Jesus what I say when I cut my finger or I smash my finger or whatever, or slam my finger in the car door? Or is Jesus a name that is to be revered? How do I even use his name? Do I put everything else above him or do I take him seriously, who he is and what he says? And do I revere him in my life? We need to honor God by giving him our best and we need to honor him by revering him for who he is. But I wanna, I wanna kinda wind down with honoring God in one more area, and it relates to how God actually started the book of Malachi. Remember he says to his people, I have loved you. The greatest way, one of the greatest ways we honor God is with our first love, our first love. Honor is really about love. If I love you, I will honor you. I like that Pastor Sam last week titled his message, Love the Family of Believers, because real honor comes from a heart of love. How you honor God is an expression of your love for God. 1 John 2.15 says, don't love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. You know, Pastor Sam recently talked about something. He talked about how we can take Jesus 
and just make him one among many things. So we take Jesus into our lives, but we've got our money, we've got our job, we've got our girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, wife, children, we've got our car, we've got whatever. We've got all of these things, and Jesus is just one among those things. And when I need Jesus to be front and center, then I'll put him front and center. But otherwise, I'll push him off to the side. I want to keep him in my universe because I'm going to go to heaven. I want all that stuff. But I'm going to push him off to the side a little bit, and I'm going to move something else front and center. But when I'm in a scrape and I need God to do something for me, Jesus, you're going to be front and center. I need you to provide for me. I need you to heal me. I need you to whatever. But Jesus is just one among many other other things. That is not the role that Jesus wants to play in our life. That is not giving Jesus our first love. That's not what it looks like. I was having a conversation the other day uh, with a couple, and we were kind of talking about the issue of marriage and so forth. And uh, she said to me, she said, you know, one time I was dating this guy before she met her husband, who's the guy she was supposed to marry, thanks be to God. Before she married him, she was dating another guy. And she said, I'm dating this guy. And come to find out, he's dating four or five other women at the same time he's dating me. Now, how would that go over in your world if you're just like one of so many people? If you're going to get engaged to a guy and he's like, hey, I want to marry you. I'm also going to marry like four other women too. Um... So I love you, uh, but, and you'll be front and center, but only sometimes. You're kind of the, you, you, wouldn't that just kind of make you feel like a consolation prize? You're all about me when the other four people fail you. But sometimes we do that to God. We don't make God the first and best, give him our first love. He's just one among many loves, and we love him greatly at certain times, and at other times, He's just, he's just secondary. He's just there when I need him to do what I need him to do. I love this verse in Mark 12, 30. Pastor Ken and I did a series last, last uh, summer, and we were talking about the Jesus Creed, which is really based on an encounter Jesus had with a religious leader. And this religious leader comes up to him and says, okay, Jesus, what's the best command? And Jesus takes two things from the Old Testament, and he puts them together, and he says this. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and two, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no command greater than these. The first and greatest command is to love the Lord your God with everything you have. And when you love the Lord your God with everything you have, then you're able to love people around you with the love that God gives you. That's the greatest thing. But what we kind of do sometimes is we kind of turn everything else into our love and love the Lord your God when you get around to it. Love the Lord your God when you need something. But Jesus' words are, the greatest thing I could say to you is love God with everything you have and then love your neighbor as yourself. You read the book of Revelation, there are times when Jesus talks about you have lost your first love all y'all that were are married, remember when y'all first met and you were first dating? You, all, you gave your best to your, to your betrothed, your beloved, to him, to her. You always looked good. You always smelled good. Your car was always clean. I took my wife for our first date on my car. It was an old Ford Escort. Do they even make Escorts anymore? They don't? Great. That makes me feel wonderful. So... I took my wife for a date in a car that no longer exists. My, my seat was broken. It like always just flopped back. It didn't sit upright, you know. I don't think it was dirty, but I mean, here I'm gonna take, she's now my wife, and I took her out for a date in a little tiny Ford Escort 
with a busted seat. And you know what? She sat sideways in that seat and looked at, we had a great time, you know. I wish I could have taken her out in a nicer vehicle, but dude, that's all that I had. So my escort with the busted seat. You gave, ever, you gave them the best that you had. Like I said, you look good, you smell good, you always talked nice, you behaved yourself, you did all of those things. Jesus is saying, do that kind of stuff with me all the time. You don't want to get in your marriage relationship, and dating was great, but now he just treats me like trash. He just treats me like a commoner. You don't want to get into your marriage relationship 10 years married, and he just treats you like he treats everyone else. You still want to be front and center. And Jesus says to his people in Revelation, you're losing your first love. Go back to what you did at the beginning. Let me be, honor me by giving me your first love. But here's one of the challenges that we have. And that is without God's grace in my life, without God's work in my life, I can't love him. This heart is just so fallen and so broken that without him doing his work in me, I can't love him with everything that I have. Ultimately, without him doing his work in me, without me receiving his love first, I can't revere him like he needs to be revered. I can't give him my first and best if he doesn't grant me his grace to do it in the first place. And I love this passage of scripture in John 17, 26. Jesus is praying. He's about to go to the cross, but he's praying for his followers, not just the 12 disciples, but for me and for you. And he says, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. The love that you, Heavenly Father, have for me, Jesus, your son, I want that love to be in my followers. A year or two ago, I referenced this passage of scripture and I told you, you wanna love Jesus like he needs to be loved? You want to honor him with your best? You wanna revere him like he should be revered? You wanna give him your first love? Let your daily prayer be, God, grant me a work of the Spirit to love Jesus like you love him. Heavenly Father, do such a work in my heart that I love Jesus just like you love Jesus. And we have that kind of love resident in our hearts and lives. We have that kind of work resident in our hearts and lives. Then we're able to love God with everything that we have. We can actually walk out those commands. Then we can honor God with our best. We can revere God. We can take him seriously. We can do what we're supposed to do because we've allowed him to work in our hearts in our lives, work his love in our hearts and in our lives. So here's my question. Do you love Jesus like the Father loves him? I think there are days when I really love Jesus, and I think there are other days when I need the, the Father and the Holy Spirit to do a work in my heart to love Jesus like they love Jesus. Do you love Jesus like the Father loves Jesus? Do you? For some of us in this room, that love has grown cold. In fact, we responded earlier, and some of you said, I don't have that love for Jesus, but now you do because you've allowed the Holy Spirit to accomplish that work in your life. But I just want to get a chance to pray for you before we leave the doors of this building this morning. And what I want to pray is exactly what John 17, 26 says. I want to pray that Jesus would so work in you, the Holy Spirit would so work in you, a love for Jesus, that you love him just like the Father loves him. And when you do that, you'll be able to honor God. You'll be able to honor all people. You will be able to love the family of believers 
because we love because he first loved us. Would you stand with me, please?